welcome to Gone Fishing, a podcast from the Northeast Business Resilience Centre, aka the NEBRC, focusing on all things cyber related. Our aim is to help raise awareness and understanding among business audiences, supporting them to be better prepared and protected from the growing issue of cybercrime and fraud. I'm Rebecca Chapman, Director of the NEBRC and a Superintendent at South Yorkshire Police, with nearly 30 years policing experience across Uniform and CID. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking to not just one, but two uh, people from Lloyd's. Brian Dilley, the Group Director of Economic Crime Prevention, who is Lloyd's Banking Group and the founding chair of the NEBRC, and also Lee Bradley, the Director of Economic Crime Prevention Oversight, also from Lloyd's. And perhaps maybe, uh, Brian, you could start by saying why why I've got two for the price of one. <laughs> yeah, sure. So uh, the... As you said, founding uh, founding chair of the uh, advisory board for the Northeast Business Resilience Centre, uh, a role from which I'll be stepping down at the end of the year, and Lee will be taking my my role on the board. Um, and uh, as you know, we're we're, look, we're looking for a new chair, so uh, but uh, Lee will take my place on the board. That's perfect. I'm really delighted to have both of you with us today. Uh, I'm hoping you can give us a unique insight into uh, banking and how it connects with the NEBRC. If you could just start maybe, Brian, just telling us a little bit about your current role and what it involves. Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm the Group Director of Economic Crime Prevention. um, And under Economic Crime Prevention, we include uh, fraud, anti-money laundering, uh, anti-bribery and sanctions implementation. Um, so quite a broad range of things. So, you know, in, in that type of role, you can go from, obviously, we've had a lot to do with Russian sanctions after the invasion of, of Ukraine. Uh, we deal with bribery and corruption. We deal with uh, illegal wildlife trafficking. Um, we, we prevent fraud against our customers and against the, uh, the public purse. Uh, and we, we monitor transactions and customers for, for money laundering concerns. So quite a broad range and each day can be quite unique and that uh, that role is across all Lloyd's banking brands which is Lloyd's Bank, Halifax, Bank of Scotland, MBNA, uh, Lex Auto Lease, lots of others. I think I think I'm the money laundering reporting officer for about 25 different uh, different legal entities so uh, quite a, a broad broad and deep range of activity uh, and obviously there's a very close link between those activities and cyber, although our cyber prevention team uh, sits elsewhere within Lloyd's, but we work very closely with them when we're looking at um, you know, the, the threat actors for cyber and fraud who are often often the same people. And if you weren't busy enough, I do know that you hold a number of, and have held a number of external positions within the industry. So just talk us a little bit through that. Uh, yeah, so I, I sit on the uh, Economic Crime uh, Product and Service Board at UK Finance. Um, uh, I used to chair that and I now sit on the board, uh, as does Lee. Um, I'm a, a board member of Stop Scams UK, which is a, an organisation and a director of Stop Scams UK, which is an organisation set up to try and uh, stop scams at source. It's a collaboration between banks, uh, telcos, social media and big tech, uh, really trying to come up with some innovative ways to uh, to stop bank scams one of the big big items uh, that we've delivered on that is the 159 fraud reporting line uh, that you can phone and, and be guaranteed you get through to your bank um, and then I could probably list half a dozen other things that, <laughs> that, I've, that I've been involved with over the years and they're probably the main ones at the moment. 
Yeah, so very busy. Uh, Lee, are you equally as busy? Uh, I, well, I line into Brian, so I'd say I'm more busy, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, my, my role um, reports into, into Brian, but I'm specifically looking at the, the, the policy for economic crime and also the, the oversight of uh, policy as well. So yeah, a, a wide ranging role, but really, you know, my job and my team's job is there to hold our frontline colleagues who are dealing with economic crime uh, to account, but also to support them as well. Um, so an important role just to make sure that we're doing everything that we need need to do in the, the fight against economic crime, and also keep keep Brian safe in his MLRO responsibilities. So, so uh, yeah, me and me and Brian have worked close together for the last last six years. Equally on the external side, as well as the economic crime PSB at um, UK Finance that Brian mentioned there, I'm also the, the chair of the UK Finance Fraud uh, Committee as well. So we've got good representation uh, across industry, which gives us that kind of wider view, as well as having the uh, the kind of in-depth view across the, the Lloyds Banking Group as well. So Lee, sticking with you, how might this have changed over the last few years and the importance of kind of your remit today? So the big the big change really has been in the the cyber enabled fraud side of of things. So you know historically we used to see lots of fraud that were in the physical environment, like ATMs being attacked, etc. Um, so although there was a lot of that going on, they were they were quite easy to to tackle and, and address. You know they would they would easily be identifiable within our data once we'd run some analysis. Now, nowadays, a big change is that a lot of the compromise events that happen from a fraud perspective happen on platforms outside of banking. So typically social media platforms, telecommunications, um, etc. So that makes it more difficult because we, we're a bit blinded to those compromise events. Um, and that's where the, the organized criminal gangs now like to really target people, especially from a social engineering perspective. Um, to really help to uh, take over their accounts and then and then contact the bank to to cash out. So it's made it a lot more difficult because people are being socially engineered. It's now sometimes the customers themselves who are, who are making the the transaction out on behalf of the fraudster, which makes it a lot more difficult to spot than uh, in the older days when, as I say, it used to be the fraudsters trying to access the account. So I think that's been that's been the big change. Uh, you know, within that, we've had to react by doing lots of consumer education and awareness to the threats that are out there. I think the other banks have done likewise. You know, if you're watching TV nowadays, you'll typically see lots of campaigns around possible scams that are out there. And I think we'll need, we need to continue that whilst also we try to enhance our systems as well to, to spot those anomalies in, in the behavior, even if it is a customer that's, that's uh, making the transaction on behalf of. So I think I think that's the big change. I think businesses equally have been targeted by fraudsters in a similar way. You know, finance teams at, at different at different businesses can be socially engineered to make payments out. So we've seen increases in in that area as well. So we're trying to work through the, some of the work that Brian's doing with Stop Scams as an example with that wider ecosystem. So working with social media companies and, and telecommunication companies now to try and get to the point where we can share information cross-sector to uh, to tackle the problem so we've got some green shoots on that i would say but it's still in its infancy and we we definitely need to build that out as quick as we can 
Yeah, things change, don't they, very quickly in the world of uh, cybercrime. The the threat landscape changes quite quickly. So, Brian, obviously you've been involved for over 20 years in this industry. What have you seen change over that time? I think the, um, as, as Lee was saying, that the, the methodology um, the delivery channel, I guess, to getting to the customers is the, is the big change. I'm, I'm always amazed, actually, when we talk about, you know, um, cybercrime being completely different to the types of scams and frauds that we, we looked at in the past. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the scams are the, the same methodology, but with a different uh, narrative over the top. So particularly for some of the things, as Lee was saying, about the, uh, where the customer is duped into making the payment rather than the unauthorised access, you know, we've, that's been a big uh, emerging theme over the last uh, what six or seven years, I guess, is, is probably the, the period where that's really, uh, really grown. But you know, you heard people, uh, including Home Secretaries, actually saying about the um, during the first lockdowns, there'd been a massive increase in, in COVID fraud. Um, and actually, what that was was exactly the same MOs that have been happening before. But instead of getting a, a message that says your raw mail delivery is, uh, is is due tomorrow or whatever. It said your vaccine is is due or you've been in contact with somebody that, that's got COVID. So the underlying um, methodology that the fraudsters were undertaking was exactly the same. It's just, it's the narrative to, to draw the customer in, draw the victim in, into believing that this is a genuine, uh, a genuine person or a genuine, uh, genuinely your bank getting in touch with you, which is one of the reasons we talked about 159 earlier. That's one of the reasons for setting that up, because the point of that is that it's supposed to be a number that anyone can call and then you get through to your bank, whichever bank it is. So if you receive a call in um, and you're that purports to be from your bank telling you your account is unsafe or anything like that, um, then you can hang up and dial 159 and you know that you're speaking to your bank. Um, but as I say, the underlying methodologies um, haven't changed. It's just the narrative that goes over the top that changes and it changes every five minutes, right? So, um, so you know, there'll be a new one next week. There was a new one last week um, and whatever is topical will be what they try and use to, to draw people in. Yeah, it's really hard to try and keep up with the the trends and the patterns uh, and obviously, you know, I speak to people in the community who have been um, had over in various different ways by by tricksters and fraudsters. And certainly since I joined the police, you know, it used to be somebody frog marching somebody to an ATM to draw out money. Um, and now it's it could be anything from romance fraud to CEO fraud, yeah, you know, and, and taking over people's details online. What advice would you would you give to people that because obviously the, the trends are still there, the the patterns are still there, it's still on the up. Um, what advice would you give to people? So I think for small businesses, the 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 area that we still see most of the uh, scams for small businesses is is what we call as uh, business email compromise or BEC uh, scam, which is CEO fraud is is uh, one variant of that. And I think I've always found it's a little bit a uh, little bit misleading to talk about business email compromise because often it's not compromised. So there's there's two different ways that this can happen. One, one is when, you're, when your, um, your work email is genuinely compromised, as in somebody has, has managed to get inside the company, the company's email, and therefore they send you an email from your CEO's address or somebody else saying there's an urgent payment to be made. Um, the, the hybrid in the middle is where your domain is not safe, um, and there are, there are tools out there that you can use uh, to assess whether your domain is safe. 
So you might have a situation where, you know, if if your uh, if your address is uh, northeast NEBRC, for example, if that was an email domain, um, then anyone could set up uh, an email address with NEBRC at the end of it, and therefore you could set up, you know, CEO at NEBRC and and send an email out. And then the other one, which is which is very common, which is actually they just send an email from an address that looks like um, the the address. So it might have a um, a three instead of the e for NEBRC, or if it's a if it's something with an l in it, it might have a one instead of instead of an l, and therefore it looks like it comes from uh, uh, from that email address. So there's only one digit different. The advice is because, as you can hear, that's quite complicated in terms of the different ways that you can you can identify whether it, whether it is a, a compromised email or an email that's got a, a similar address. The advice is never make a payment off of the back of an email if you haven't spoken to someone. So now the emails will often say, I'm, you know, I'm stuck here, I'm stuck there, I can't speak to you, because the fraudsters will be desperately trying to make sure that you don't call them back. But call them back on a, on a number that you know, um, because we've also had some situations where somebody in that business email compromise, they get sent an invoice or a letter with a phone number on it, and they go, oh yeah, I remember. I've, I've had the training. I need to. I need to call back. And they call back on the number that's in the email that they received, which of course is the fraudster's number. So the, the advice is, whenever anyone's asking you to make a payment, um, uh, and particularly an urgent payment, always phone back on a number that you have used before, or a number that you trust, uh, and confirm it. Because, as you can see in that in the variety of different scenarios, it's almost impossible to to know that it definitely came from. Uh, from the person who said they uh, purports to have sent it, and of course, in some of those as well, if if it is actually a compromised email and they've got access to an inbox, they will also put some uh, personal commentary in there that that relates to your prior conversations with that person. So if you've said, you know, Billy starts school this week, it will come back and say, oh, I hope Billy's got on okay at school. Can you make this urgent payment? So you know, you're drawn in because you think, well, that has to be from them because who else could it be from? So the, the advice is always call back on a number that you know will get you through to that person. Yeah, thanks for that. I, you know, I was at a conference recently on cybercrime and fraud, and actually it could have been the same two conferences because fraud seems to overlap now into cyberspace. So the things that you're hearing at a fraud conference are exactly the same things that you're hearing now at cyber. Would it be more helpful if to the general public that the guidance was all issued, you know, in the fraud arena or the cyber arena, one or the other, but maybe not both, or does it need to be called something different maybe? What do you think, Lee? I, I think it, it we're at the point now, I think, where it does need a coordinated effort just to have one message going out to the general the general public. And this is what we're, we're pushing for as well at industry level and with government because it, it feels like we're at a point where, you know, like the, the five-a-day um message that got pushed out by by government that that hit home um we we almost need similar messages going for for fraud um and i don't think it really matters what you badge it as whether it's cyber fraud or, or whatever the message just needs to be a simple one um and i think the messages need need to be about kind of you know what what to do but also what what not to do you know the fraud the fraudsters will always try to get people into a, an emotional state to make a payment so you know as brian just mentioned there the emails that come through 
the contacts will always it will always be something urgent that needs doing there and then so it's very very important that people you know take take the time just to step back as well if it is something that's been pushed through urgent and unexpected um to make the right right decisions in a less emotionally charged way so i think i think the messages need to come through loud and clear it needs to be consistent but it needs to be simple so that people can understand you know what actions they need to take as well because at the moment there's lots of lots of people pushing lots of education and awareness out there in slightly different ways it's all well intentioned but whether it all hits home is debatable whereas i think if you just got very clear and concise messaging sometimes that can work better i think as well it also it depends on whether you're talking about um con- consumers or small businesses so i think for consumers they really don't distinguish between cyber and fraud i mean basically all of these things are ways to try and and extract money from them when you're talking to, to a small business of course there is a a separate aspect of defending your perimeter as a small business against um cyber attack versus the attempt to defraud you with with cyber fraud so i think there's a slightly nuanced message for businesses that you don't have with consumers with consumers it's just this is all this is all cyber cyber fraud um and they wouldn't distinguish between them so um so brian i'll come to you what are the trends and patterns that you and your teams are, are spotting today with regards to economic crime particularly yeah so so i think um so certainly the 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 interaction and overlap between fraud and and money laundering um those edges have become uh much more blurred over the last few years i think in particular for example um the the emergence of money mules and i, I should have said earlier actually by the way so um we we feel strongly that the the move into authorized fraud um has been at least in part as a result of the more stringent measures to prevent unauthorized fraud so all of the security measures that've been put in place that have made it harder for fraudsters to uh, to access bank account credit cards or spend on credit cards etc has meant that they've moved into scamming the customer because obviously the customer doesn't have those those protections around them i think similarly for uh, money laundering um whereas in the past it may it may have been possible to control bank accounts within institutions more easily than it is today um what they've then therefore done is moved on to money mules and money mules can take an, uh, a whole range of uh, of aspects to them so you've got the the witting money mules uh, which are the the ones that are basically they know exactly what they're doing and they're allowing their account to be used for criminal purposes um you have the unwitting money mules so certain so sometimes criminal money is put into somebody's bank account without them knowing and then the criminal will go to them and say oh i've made a mistake i've 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 made a payment into your account can you just pay it back to me but for your troubles you can you can keep a percentage um and then you've got your professional uh, mule herders who are basically going around gathering up these these people to use the use the bank account so that that's definitely been uh, a big change over the last few years and actually over over a period you see different populations being most targeted and most at risk and there's some horrific stories you know we've had stories of um of mule herders in schools as in the the older children in school bullying the younger children to have access to their bank accounts on behalf of criminal gangs who then um they then pass their money through these accounts so this is young children who are kind of afraid of the bully 
as opposed to allowing their account to be used for criminal purposes to make money out of it. So that, that moves around. We've seen students, uh, university students in particular is a big population for that, where we've done recently done some uh, training at uh, a couple of universities because the students are basically approached and told, you know, you're, you're struggling with your university fees and cost of living, etc. You can make a bit of money here. Um, and, uh, you know, they're allowing money to pass across their account. So that, that's been a that's been a big change, I think, over the last over the last few years. We used to be looking for, you know, criminals accounts that had multiple payments through. Now we're looking for one payment that goes through an account that has possibly operated for 20 years without any problems. Um, and then trying to work out is that account holder, did they know what they were doing? Did they get duped? Did they disregard um, the risk? You know, were they naive? And then from that perspective, do they therefore go on the the list that is that is held centrally to say this person has allowed their account to be used or not? Um, do you do you kind of give them the benefit of the doubt, or do you stop them from having a bank account for the next few years? Uh, it's quite a quite a tricky challenge, but I would say that's probably the biggest the biggest move in in money laundering. When you look at um, sanctions compliance, obviously been a massive change this year um, because of all of the sanctions that have been put in place um, against Russia, um, which hasn't been anything new, but it's probably been many many years worth of sanctions in in the space of about six weeks. So it was just the volume of it that there was the the issue, but we're now moving into a realm with sanctions compliance where we're talking about putting caps on the price of oil, for example, which is a very different, you know, most of our sanctions compliance that we do is you screen names for uh, for payments and say, well, these are the people that you're not supposed to deal with. Um, if you start saying, actually, what you've got to do is look for oil prices that are above the minimum level set by you know, international governments, then that's a that's a very different process to uh, a screening solution that we that we use today. So I think that that will be a challenge going forward in the sanction space. And Lee, where where do you think the money is going from all this fraud? Um, I mean, the, the the money obviously is is going through the system into criminal gangs to be to be laundered. So I mean, you know, it filters through into you know all sorts of harms against society so you know the the earlier we can catch it at the fraud point the better but but yeah certainly going into criminal gangs hands um you know whether that's coming through um you know money from drugs human trafficking etc and then and then through to be washed so it's uh yeah it's important that we we keep on top of it and we've got the monitoring at both the the fraud execution level but also when that mon money's been passing through the mule accounts that, that brian's mentioned there the, the the gangs are never going to go away you know they they just kind of displace so once we we put strategies in to prevent one area of of crime they they quickly migrate to to another area of the, the banking system in particular so it's uh it's important that we you know we remain alert keep on our toes and are constantly evolving not only the strategies that we have in now but you know the uh, the solutions uh the decisioning points that we we will put in, in the future as well. So we, you know, we, you know, certainly at Lloyd's we invest significant sums year on year to try and keep a ahead of the game. I know our industry counterparts likewise as well. Um, so yeah, it's 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 important that we we continue to do that. We continue to try and prevent and disrupt wherever we can. Um, 
and also kind of work together, not just across our banking industry, but, you know, cross sector as well to really uh, make sure that everybody's putting a joint effort into preventing, you know, crime at every level. But yeah, it's, it's certainly not, not going away and keeps us busy at the moment. I think with um, <clears throat> it's such a fluid thing, uh, fraud and cybercrime, where quite a lot of the money ends up out of the country, can't be traced, there's no court case, there's no judicial outcome, there's no closure for the victim. So obviously prevention is better than cure uh, at the other side of it. Now you're both clearly on the forefront of emerging security measures. What are the current priorities in the economic crime space? So we've had a lot of changes to, to legislation um, as a result of the, the war in Ukraine. But a lot of, a lot of those um, were many, many years in the in the pipeline. So it's good to see a lot of them uh, going through. And we've got, I think, four different pieces of legislation going through at the moment that have an impact on, on economic crime. Delighted, by the way, to see the, the online online safety bill coming back, uh, coming back to the House of Commons next week, actually, uh, which is which is really good news. So but within all of those, I think the number one priority is is about um, sharing information and working working together. Um, and there's been a, I would say, a difference of opinion for many years on what we can and can't do, um, and that hasn't been helpful in in getting everyone to the table. Um, because if you've got if you if your assessment is there is some risk in sharing the information, then some banks would say, well, I don't want to take that risk. Uh, we take the view that actually the benefit of sharing is is greater than the risk of of action for sharing. Um, but obviously, you've still got to share that information carefully. And some of the things that we've been working on, for example, is sharing information in real time between banks and between um, different industries in order to identify a scam in progress. Uh, so, for example, you know, at the moment, one bank makes a decision as to whether its customers being defrauded. And then if it decides, you know, if it's given a warning to its customer and doesn't have any reason to, to hold on to that payment, it then pays the payment to another bank. The other bank has no idea that you'd raise concerns in the first place. And the bank that's sending it has no information about the type of account they're sending to. So we've been running a pilot um, to look at, well, what would happen if when we send a payment, for example, we say we're sending this payment, but we gave a fraud warning on this for the following reasons. And actually, before we send it to you, can you tell us a bit about the account we're sending to? Because this is supposed to be a payment to a builder. And then the other bank could say, well, that's interesting because this account's in, in the name of this entity, but we don't think it's a builder. So it's that sort of thing. And that's just between banks, right? So now imagine you have that scenario where you're then sharing with the telecoms about where did the phone number come from? You know, what's the subscriber details, et cetera. Um, so I think for many years we've we've been operating in isolation as as individual banks, as a banking industry, as individual telecoms and and social media, um, and you know we have to be able to put all those pieces together because the fraudsters are all working together, right? So then they're not op operating in isolation. So we need to be able to do that, but we need clarity and we need everyone to have the same view on what we can and can't do, which is what some of the legislation that's going through at the moment is is intended to do. Lee, anything else to say on that? No, I mean, I agree with what Brian said. I, I suppose it, we, we covered it earlier about, you know, the more information we can share cross-sector, the better insight we have in, in terms of what the fraudsters are, are ultimately ultimately doing. I think within all of that as well, 
you know, making sure that certain sectors who are enabling fraud, you know, come to the table and help as well. Um, at the moment, the liability sits firmly with with the banks in terms of the losses at the end. Um, it'd be it'd be good if the uh, some of the sectors could could help out a bit more than what we what we currently have. Um, as I say, we, we're seeing green shoots in that, which is really positive. Uh, we just we just need more more help. Uh, I think the more data we can join up across all the different touch points um, through the journey of a of a fraud or a piece of money laundering, the, the better because those those kind of data points are going to be crucial in in our fight against economic crime in the future. So um, positive first steps, but yeah, we just need to try and build and build and build as quick as we can because to Brian point point as well you know the organized criminal gangs are working together and and um you know they they're trying to stay ahead of us we've just got to make sure that we uh, we we work at the same pace so that brings me kind of full circle round to why did you both get involved in the NEBRC and kind of what role do you think that the center has to play in the future so i think I, the reason i got involved in the first place was because um well there's a whole range of reasons i mean firstly i think um you know, educating small businesses on how to protect themselves um, against cyber and fraud um, is, well, A, it's the right thing to do. Um, it fits with our our team's purposes about reducing the harm caused by criminals and terrorists in our local communities. So clearly it, it, uh, um, it meets that, uh, that objective. Obviously, if, if those happen to be customers of, of Lloyd's, if we're educating them in how, how not to be the victim of fraud, then um, whilst in many cases with businesses, um, Lloyd's is not liable to reimburse them, um, it's still not a great experience if, if, um, if your bank has not identified and stopped a fraud against you, regardless of whether the bank's done anything wrong. There's, I think there's usually a perception from businesses that, uh, that the bank should be protecting them against those things. So that's, that's another, another benefit. And then, of course, the, the question of cyber defences and, and fraud awareness um, is, is multi-layered. So when we look at the protection for the bank, um, then we have a whole range of tests that we do on, on our suppliers to make sure our suppliers are, are secure and they're not a route into the bank. And then in recent years, we've gone on to, well, what about our suppliers' suppliers? Are they secure as well? Um, but of course, we can't go to our suppliers, 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 supplier. Um, and that, that entity is likely to be a relatively uh, small business. And therefore, if we can get the message out through the NEBRC the, as to how those people can protect themselves, then we make the whole ecosystem safer. So I think it fits with our, our principles, our priorities, our, our core mission. Um, but also there are, there are individual benefits, I think, to a wider understanding of how to protect yourself against fraud and, and cybercrime. And what are you looking forward to, Lee, being part of the board going forwards? Uh, just a continuation of all the good work that you've already done, to be honest, Becky. Um, obviously, Brian's given me a, a full kind of brief on all the activity that you've done historically. So I'm just looking forward to be, be part of that, really. I mean, to Brian's point as well, we're both passionate about preventing economic crime. I'm from the northeast as well which Brian can't claim. So um, <laughs> it's great to be involved in something locally as well. Um, so just really looking forward to, to getting involved, getting the message out, helping to protect small businesses. Again, you know, if, if businesses fail on the back of 
economic crime that has a knock-on effect to all their employees and consumers and then society at large. So if we can if we can help to prevent that, um, then yeah, I'm definitely up for that up for that challenge. And how important do you think it is? And this question is probably to both of you um, that it stays local. That that the people in the northeast of England are getting advice from people who are uh, delivering a service in the northeast of England. And businesses are our trusted partners are in the northeast of England. I think it's um, you know the, the it's very important because I think the local businesses will tend to listen to other local businesses and other local voices. Um, so particularly when you're talking small businesses, you know, small businesses aren't normally going to take their their lead from, you know, central resources, you know, out of London, out of big corporations, etc. And I think there's a difference between the, t- there's the people we're trying to reach as part of the NEBRC versus some of those larger kind of national corporations. So, you know, we're not trying to reach the big national corporations who will have their own commercial suppliers for a lot of a lot of these things. We are specifically trying to target the, you know, the smaller businesses who don't know um, how to go about doing things. Um, and I think you know they're easier to reach when you when you do that locally than if you do it, uh, you know, from particularly from London. I think in in some in some of these things because you know people are unlikely to travel to London for for a seminar on something like this, but they are likely to to travel in their local region. And part of that is also about the network that you build with with other businesses locally as well. It's not just about the the advice that you get from the organisation. It's about the connections that you build and the and the uh, the lessons that you share. Lee, do you feel the same way? Yeah, absolutely, Becky. And I think obviously leveraging um, the resources that you already have at your disposal, knowing your own patch. Um, so to speak is is really helpful I think then in tailoring the message as well so I think having that that local edge to it can sometimes be the difference between someone you know kind of really um, listening to the message and taking the relevant actions and and perhaps listening but maybe not not kind of you know implementing it to its full extent so I think I think working on a more local basis is uh, is is definitely the way to the way to go to get the best benefit yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I uh, went all the way down to London to get Brian to be the chair, uh, and then we've ended up with you, and you're already up here. It's good news. I, I suppose it shows the benefits, though, doesn't it, of of kind of pulling on all the information that we have, you know, across across the UK, but then tailoring the message at the end. I think I think that's the the answer, really. Um, you know, there's there's lots of resources a, across the UK that we can leverage, but. Um, we need people to take action at the end of the day. And I think that, that kind of local messaging helps with that. I agree. I agree. Well, it's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you both today. My uh, heartfelt thanks goes to Brian for agreeing to be the chair in the first place and kicking off this whole thing uh, sort of three years ago. And uh, we wish him all the best in his retirement. And I really look forward to working with you, Lee. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you both. Thanks very much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Gone Fishing. I hope you've enjoyed listening. You can find all our other episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you've listened to this one. And you can also watch them all on YouTube. Please come and find us online at nebrcentre.co.uk where you can sign up for free core membership. I hope to see you soon.